Good morning, everyone. Yeah. Yes, as Dallas said, this is not my first time preaching, but it is my first time preaching here. And in, in uh, reflecting on that, I just had a question to ask uh, for all of us newbies here. How many people have been here for less than a year? We consider ourselves new. Wow, that's crazy. How about less than, or six months or less? That is awesome. That is amazing. Uh, six months ago was about when Emily and I started attending here at The Rock. And it was about, uh, in, in beginning of September, when I came on staff here. And I hope that everyone who put up, up your hands and everyone who considers yourself still to be new, I hope that you are, all have been just as blessed as Emily and I have been by this church, by this community, uh, by everyone in this room online, by the programs that are run here, uh, and just in so many ways, we've been so incredibly blessed. So I want to thank all of you for, for that, first of all. It's hard to imagine actually having any other path in my life because God has so clearly brought us here and brought me here for a reason. But I didn't always have that attitude towards Christ. I didn't ha always have that attitude towards God. It was only seven years ago, coming right out of high school, uh, where I had some pretty serious doubts about God. Now, I was raised with him. My parents are actually here today, and they are amazing. They're integral, uh, an integral part of my story and in the many experiences I had with God growing up. But even with that, with my amazing childhood, um, amazing church, I had serious doubts. There was very little joy in my life that I felt had come from the Lord. There was very little hope in my life that I had felt had come from the Lord. And I had so many unanswered questions that I just, I, I couldn't find any answers in, in scripture or around me, and I didn't know what to do, and I doubted. This all came to a head in, in one moment. Actually, when I was at, at work, I was a construction worker. I was on a ladder, and I just felt myself, you know, all, all of this had been amping up to this moment, and I just felt myself ready to give up the entire life that God had given me. And I knew in this moment that I was going to decide if I was going to have faith in God and who he was and everything that he had already done for me, or if I was going to have faith in my doubts and abandon God and everything that he had done for me. And in this moment, when I chose God, I don't say this lightly, room was made in my heart for joy, for the joy of the Lord. Now, I asked myself this week when, when thinking about this story, what actually happened? It wasn't like in, in this one moment, suddenly I went from no joy to like abounding in joy, but something did change. And from that moment forward, more room day by day was being created in my heart for the joy of the Lord. So I was asking myself, what actually happened? Because it wasn't Christ that changed. It wasn't God who changed but it was myself who changed and God changing me. I had taken a step in faith and the joy that, that is already in, in the Lord, who is unchanging, he was making room in my heart for that joy. Jesus was making room in my heart for that joy. 
the joy that only comes through Jesus Christ. And this is what I'm going to be talking about today. The joy that only comes through Jesus Christ, that part unchanging, but making room in our hearts for the joy of the Lord. And we're going to be doing this by looking at Zechariah in the book of of Luke. So we're going to be mostly in the first chapter of Luke today, and I'm going to start in Luke 1.5. And here we see that Zechariah, we're introduced to him. He's a priest. We're told that he is totally blameless, that he is righteous in front of the Lord. So that's in his personal life and in his spiritual duties as a priest. And we're also told that him and his wife, Elizabeth, are without children in, in, in their very old age, without children, never able to have children, and now far exceeding the point where that could ever be possible. Following these verses, we see that one day Zechariah is chosen to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Here, an angel of the Lord, Gabriel, appears to him, and Gabriel says, Your prayers have been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Wow, right? What incredible news for Zechariah. He's gone his entire life, him, him and Elizabeth, without, without child. And now in his old age, when it would be impossible for anyone, he's being told that this miracle would happen and he would be given a, a child, a son. But Gabriel didn't stop there. He continued and said that this child would be special. He would be filled with the Holy Spirit. He would fulfill prophecy throughout the Old Testament and that he would prepare the way for the coming Messiah. This is good news. This is cause for celebration, right? Because not only was Zechariah promised a miraculous child, a son, but he was, he was given this good, this good news, the promise of salvation, But Zechariah, he did not celebrate. Instead, he had just a question. We see in verse 18, Zechariah says, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Zechariah, this wise, blameless priest, standing in front of an angel of the Lord in the temple of God, is given this incredible good news. But he does not celebrate, he does not have joy, because he does not believe. And now let's remember that, because that sets up a contrast for what is coming later in this chapter. When receiving the good news, he does not celebrate, he does not have joy, because he does not believe. And the angel of the Lord caused him to go mute because of this until these things would take place, until he would have a son and name him John. For the entirety of Elizabeth's pregnancy, Zechariah was unable to make a sound. Now, about a month ago, I had laryngitis, and I wasn't really able to talk much, much louder than a quiet whisper for about a week. And I was miserable. For the whole time, I was miserable. Zechariah went nearly a year unable to make a sound. 
And when these things happened, when, a, when John was born and they named him John, his voice returned. And in this moment, we might expect him to praise God, not just for his voice coming back, but for his miraculous son, right? But instead, he being filled with the Holy Spirit sings out a prophecy. We see in verse 68 uh, where he starts off. He, he, he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. He praises God, not for the birth of his son, the miraculous birth of his son, but for visiting and redeeming his people. Now, I want to pause here and soak in the significance of that point. Now, I know there are people here today online, uh, in person, who know the pain that comes with either not being able to have children or losing children. And this is pain that I can feel through the story of my brother and my sister-in-law, who in less than two years lost three pregnancies, the first of which being twins. The pain that is felt, the disappointment, the self-doubt, the awkwardness even in the community and of people not knowing how to respond. There are so many reasons why not being able to have children or losing children is horrible. But now, God had performed a miracle in Zechariah and Elizabeth, and they had a son, a miraculous son. Of course, Zechariah was filled with joy in having a son, in his miracle child. Of course he was. We see that, that everyone around him was as well. Uh, in verse 58, we, we see his friends and family celebrating the birth of his child, coming together, because of course they would. And I can actually relate with Zechariah in that celebration because today I can stand here and, and celebrate that 13 days ago my brother and sister-in-law had a little girl. The joy that is felt in, in that miracle itself but then being able to, to see her and hold her and listen to her and then when she needs a diaper change to be able to hand her off to her dad who then even takes joy in changing her diaper, which is something that I do not understand. <laughs> Zechariah, of course he shared in this joy, but he understood that something even bigger was happening. Even bigger than this immense joy in this miracle child. He praised God for coming to redeem his people to bring salvation. And in contrast to his response to Gabriel, where there's this lack of belief and there is no joy, he believes in the good news, in the promises um, in, that he sees in the Old Testament, and he praises God. 
This belief brought joy that surpassed even the joy he had in his son. He was able to look backwards and joyfully believe the good news. Now we look back to Jesus. Zechariah was looking back at the promises he saw in the Old Testament. We can look back to Jesus, who though tempted was without sin, who ministered to many, many people in his life, who died for our sins to save us all, who raised to life defeating death forever, and was raised into heaven where he still lives as King of Kings and Lord of Lords to this day. Zechariah, though pointing forward to all of this, what is coming, he does so by looking backwards, by looking at the promises in the Old Testament. And we're going to read through the the song that he sings uh, upon all of this happening, starting in verse 67. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him, all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord and prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace." Now, there is a lot there. And if you want to be blown away at the connections between the Old Testament and the New Testament and the prophecy that is fulfilled, this is a really good place to start. Sadly for today, we don't have time to walk through all of that. Uh, I'm just going to draw our attention to one point, and I think the main theme that holds this together, that theme being salvation. This theme being throughout the whole song, but we are going to zoom in on the point of the horn of salvation, which I think sheds a lot of light on the rest of this. Now, the horn is a symbol of power in the Old Testament and to these people. Picture a strong ox or a bull. There's incredible strength seen in the horn. And this image comes up multiple times in the Bible, like in 2 Samuel 22 and Psalm 18 where the horn of salvation is seen right beside words like the Lord being my fortress and my shield, my deliverer, and my stronghold. The horn of salvation is leading, is leading the charge to defeat the enemy. And Zechariah is declaring that the enemy will soon be defeated. Zechariah was likely in this, in this place, even though he was prophesying, he was likely thinking that this enemy was Rome and the people that were oppressing his people. But we know by looking throughout the rest of the New Testament, especially in Ephesians 6, 
that the enemy is not actually Rome or any human institution, but the powers of sin and evil itself. And this leads us to the second meaning behind the horn of salvation, and I think for us, an even more significant meaning. To do this, we have to look back a little bit earlier in the chapter. Remember where Gabriel visited Zechariah? In the temple of God, but more, more specifically than that. Now, I'm going to read the account and try to pay attention to the repetition that is seen here because repetition in the Bible is a sign to pay attention. So in verse 9, we see that according to the custom of the priesthood, he, Zechariah, was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Incense here is mentioned three times, drawing our attention to the altar, to the incense. And Gabriel appears right beside the altar of incense. Now, stick with me here. It's going to make sense. Going back to Exodus 30 in verses 1 to 10, we see the instructions for, for creating the altar of incense. And I'm going to draw our specific attention to verse 10, where it says, Aaron shall make atonement on its, the altar of incense, on its horns once a year. With the blood of the sin offering of atonement, he shall make atonement for it once in the year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. The atonement, the sacrifice for the sins of the people, is made on the altar of incense, specifically on the horns of the altar. Zechariah is making this connection. God has raised up a horn of salvation in the house of David, and that is Jesus. Jesus didn't just come to set his people free from physical oppression. He came to do permanently what the sacrifice on the horns of the altar could only symbolize, what had to be done year after year after year. Jesus came to do that permanently. The hope of salvation from the eternal enemy, from evil, sin, death, and hell. That is what was coming. The horn of salvation to save the enemies, to give the knowledge of salvation and the forgiveness of sins, to shed light on those in darkness and in the shadow of death. All of this Zechariah believes and he declares out in joy. When Gabriel gave Zechariah the same news about a year earlier in the temple, he doesn't believe, and we see no joy. Here, Zechariah believes, and joy pours out of him. Zechariah looks back, and he joyfully believes in the promises of God. So then what does this drive Zechariah to do? He looks back, he joyfully believes in the promises, and in the present, 
He joyfully worships because of the good news. The moment Zechariah is able to speak, the first words that come out of his mouth, we see in verse 64, were blessing God. He praised the Lord. He worships God for what he has done and was now doing. And he breaks out in this song filled with joy. And this isn't the only place that this happens in the first chapters of Luke. We see this kind of joy-filled worship and response to God with Mary, with the multitude of angels, with the shepherds, and with Simeon. And this begs the question, how do I worship God? Do I worship God like I believe the good news? Do I worship God like I believe that he is who he says he is, the powerful creator and sustainer of the universe, like he is just and sovereign, yet abounding in steadfast love, kind and filled with mercy? And do I worship him like like I believe in what he has done and saved me and all of us from the power of sin and death? What would that even look like? this kind of worship. When I think of worship in the Bible and and who to look to for an example, uh, King David comes to mind, an incredible worshiper of God. So what, what did David do? Now, there are times when David dances without abandon, not caring what people think, and there are times when he shouts for joy. But there are also times when he sits in quiet reflection, reflecting on the mysteries of God in pain and sorrow. What David always does is he, he speaks in truth, the truth of who God is, of what God has done and what God will do. Joy-filled worship can look many, many different ways. But the direction always remains the same. We have a good God, and he has given us good news. Worship isn't just singing for the sake of singing, sounding good. Worship isn't just dancing uh, or or shouting. Worship isn't um, sitting in silent prayer just because you know you're supposed to or thanking God just because it's it's an obligation. It is realizing who God is, what he has done, and honestly responding to that. So what does joyfully worshiping God look like? What does it look like to you? Maybe it does mean shouting for joy, or dancing in the aisles, or or, or making a, a, a ruckus for God. Maybe that is what it means. Or maybe it means sitting in quiet silence and just like silently in your heart thanking God for who he is and what he has done. Maybe it's, it's anywhere in between. Maybe it's, maybe it's going for a walk. Maybe it's writing in a journal, reflecting on God. It can look many different ways and likely will change day to day, hour to hour. 
The challenge is to honestly reflect on God and joyfully worship. Whatever we do, joyfully worship because we really have received good news and we serve a great God. So we look back at what is already done and joyfully believe in the good news of what is already done. And we remain present. We joyfully worship because of that good news. And now we look ahead and joyfully live in the coming good news. We take joy in what Jesus has already done, but at the same time we live in this tension because we still feel the effects of sin and death and pain and sorrow. That part, that part doesn't go away. John Piper wrote a powerful example of this in his book, God is the Gospel. And it's a little bit long, so I have to paraphrase, but it goes like this. Imagine prisoners of war in a, in a prisoners of war camp, so you're surrounded by barbed wire, looking in, they're, they're starving, they're dirty, they're unshaven. There's no joy. There's no hope. It looks like they're just waiting to die. Then one day, looking in, something has clearly changed. These same men looking just as, as starving, as dirty, as unshaven as the day before are celebrating. They're smiling. They're laughing. I mean, what would you think? I might think these guys have gone insane. But in reality, something else has happened. Overnight, someone threw a radio over the fence and they heard that the war is over and the victory is already won. Now all they have to do is wait for their freedom. The victory is already won. The, the joy doesn't come from the fact that there's no more pain because the pain still exists. The joy and the celebration comes because we can look forward and know that the victory is already won. The enemy is defeated. Freedom is coming. Jesus already won against sin and death and hell. Yes, we take joy in that. And he is coming again to fully accomplish what is promised. That there will be a day, as we see in Revelation 21, there will be a day when he will wipe away every tear. Death shall be no more. There will be no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. The victory is already won. This is a guarantee. We are like those soldiers, still stuck, still stuck in the, the effects of sin and death. But we know that freedom is on the horizon. I briefly shared the story of my brother and sister-in-law and their lost pregnancies. That is pain that they are still sitting in and that our family is still sitting in. Even now, with a happy and healthy baby, which we praise God for every day, that pain is still real. And everyone here has, you all have your own stories. 
You all have your own pain, your own sorrows, your own grief. That is real, that is valid, and that does not just go away. But the truth is, and this is a promise, that for those of us who believe in Jesus, a future is coming where that pain will be no more. We can take joy in that hope. And I can take joy that there will be a resurrection and that I will be able to stand in the glory of God with my nephews and nieces that I have not even met. Uh, Worship team, you can come forward. There are three challenges here today. And I encourage you to just pick one to reflect on. Which one is God challenging you to, to focus on today? Is he challenging you to look back, joyfully believing in the good news? Perhaps spending more time in the Gospels, in what God has already done, thanking him for the work he's already done. Maybe he's challenging you to be present with him, joyfully worshiping him. Now, maybe that means being pushed outside of your normal comfort zone of worship or spend more time with God, just just reflecting and, and honestly thanking him. Is he challenging you to look ahead, joyfully living in the coming good news? perhaps reflecting on the promises of salvation or praying for faith that he is coming again. Whatever God is doing in your heart today, I pray that he is working in your heart and making room for, joy, for his joy in your life. So God, I praise you. I praise you right now. I thank you for everything that you are I thank you for everything that you have done. Looking back, I thank you for sending Jesus. I thank you for defeating death already on the cross and being raised to life again, that you still live. God, I worship you in the present, joyfully, and I pray for faith and joy in the promises for the future. You have given us good news, and I pray that we would make room for joy in our hearts today in believing that good news. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.